Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hello, this is Dr. John Jerica, co-founder of NewScript, where we're dedicated to helping clinicians pursue fulfilling non-traditional jobs. To that end, we're holding a free summit from April 11 through the 13th featuring 12 experts covering careers in pharma, hospital management, consulting, writing, and more. To get the complete list of topics and speakers, go to nonclinicalphysicians.com forward slash summit 2023. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. For those of you who tune in week to week, I've been really interested in telling other physicians' stories. Some have achieved financial success through either medicine or side gigs. Others have really fought to overcome burnout. And whether that meant a career change or just a mindset change, you know, it's a different journey for everybody. We've had others who have found really interesting ways in trying to take back medicine and make it meaningful. Today, I have a very special guest with me who I think actually hits all of the categories I just mentioned. She started practicing as an emergency room physician, but became disheartened by some things that were going on in medicine at the time. She ended up changing her practice focus altogether and turning her new love into a very successful business, which she grew over time. She then wrote a book to help other physicians, and that book is called MedSpa Confidential. You can actually find that on Amazon.com. And unfortunately, she ended up going through some very serious changes, some personal adversity, which forced her into some other changes that she had never planned on going through. So let's get to know her and hear her story. I would like to welcome to the show, Dr. Carol Clinton. Welcome to the show, Carol. It's great to be here. And I'm so glad you're doing this for physicians and people considering being in medicine. Thank you, Tammy. Well, let's start at the beginning. If I understand right, you started your career as an emergency room physician. Yes. And I would say I started as an idyllic career. My first attending physician was in Hilton Head, South Carolina, where everybody had private insurance on top of having, you know, if they were over 65, their Medicare. We didn't have any managed care of any amount down there in 1993. And When I saw a patient in the emergency room, we weren't talking about money or worried about money. We were just worried about taking care of the patient and meeting their needs where they were at and what did we additionally need to do to make sure they stayed healthy at home. And if I needed a particular, I'll just say alligator forceps, like, can I have this pair of alligator forceps? The next thing I knew, I had them. I was not fighting for anything. There was no you know, disagreement about what medications I could or couldn't prescribe to somebody. And there were 60-some physicians on staff at Hilton Head. And honestly, on Wednesday afternoon, they played golf together. That sounds perfect. I think that's what we all have in mind when we go into medicine. (laughs) It is. And you know, the saddest thing that I saw happen is that the hospital came in and got bought by a tenant which is a very large hospital system that I would think most of us know, that physicians started selling their practices to tenant 
And know. it changed the whole landscape of, you know, they thought they were getting relief of some of the administrative burden. And as we all know, that's not what's happened over time. And the administrative burden has just gone up. So sure. I transitioned out of Hilton Head and I moved back to Columbus, Ohio, where I trained because my husband, frankly, would be happier in Columbus and our children would have more opportunities. So we went back to Columbus and I worked in a hospital system that I loved with a very large group of well-established physicians who's one of the oldest emergency medicine groups in the U.S. that's not private equity owned or bought out still to this day. And they were great to work with until, again, the hospital owned by Trinity Health System started getting a lot of MBAs in their suite, not really understanding what it took care to take care of patients. And one day I found myself where tech from, no, I don't even think she was a tech, she might've been a volunteer, wheeled someone back from the lobby, put them in a bed, and then came around the corner and I was sitting down and she said, I wonder who's going to take care of the person who's dying in bed 19. You know, there are three physicians on at this time. It was a big emergency department. Nobody knew ahead of time that this person was coming back. She was absolutely bleeding to death. And the directive from the nursing staff was, we're not even looking for any medical records or anything. It's all on you. You figure it out. We'll be here maybe for you if you want. And that was really kind of the last straw for me as things had gone downhill for everything kind of being a great day for me, a great day for patients, a great day for the staff around me. I felt like everybody was a loser that day, except that patient. She did not die. And like, I cannot continue to practice medicine this way. So, you know, I started to deep dive and it was in 2002. And at that point in time, I had a friend who was a plastic surgeon. And she said, you know, could you come over to my office? And this is a friend from medical school. I want you to see what's going on with this product called Botox. And when I went over, you know, I mean, as an emergency physician, your hands are on patients with procedures all the time. So I was not reluctant to pick up a needle or a syringe and inject. And she just said, I need to be in the operating room. Like, I can't be in the office all day doing this. So that's when I'm like, well, maybe I can do an experiment a little bit, do this as a practice on the side and see if I can get back to that doctor-patient relationship that meant so much to me. Mm -hmm. And I know it's very different. I said it went from saving lives to saving looks. The people <laughs> don't care about how they present themselves during the day and how they live as well as staying alive. So sure. I made the transition and in 2004, I really did not know that it would be successful or not. I dedicated about six hours a week to it. And within six months, it was clear I had to pick one or the other. And remember back in those days, nobody talked about these procedures. You know, you could do a little bit of advertising, but, you know, you just hoped people came from the advertising that you did, especially for me, since I had no established practice, like I didn't have a family practice, a dermatology or a plastic surgery practice pulling people in. So I did that. And then unfortunately, six months later, I was diagnosed with aggressive ovarian cancer. Oh no. So I had built out this beautiful new office and about five days before we had our opening event, I got a call from my GYN. And he said, you know, we did the ultrasound last week and we did your annual exam 
and your CA-125 has come back, it's over a thousand. And his response to me is, what do you want to do? And I said, I'm not in charge. <laughs> You're in charge. Like, I don't know. Let's walk through it. So we went ahead and had the opening party, but I had two surgeries within two weeks immediately after opening my own office. So that was pretty tough. And if you could imagine the financial strain when you go from having a job that's a paycheck with no overhead, and then you go to generating your own overhead, and then being with a disease that they tell you your five-year life expectancy is 18%, and you just sunk all of your family's money into a new office. It was definitely a trying time. And if anybody who's listening knows what the surgery for ovarian cancer is, it's a very large invasive abdominal surgery. And I was back in the office within two weeks. I would never in my life recommend that to anyone. And I worked throughout my chemotherapy as I was healing was the physically and mentally hardest thing that I ever did. And I know you said you've talked about disability on this show before. It never even occurred to me that I could utilize my disability at that point in time, because in my mind, disability was like somebody who had a stroke and could no longer speak or use an arm. It was so much more than what I was experiencing. And it completely downplayed my own issue because it, it was really hard to accept that I was the patient now. That is such a hard transition, just going from the doctor to being the patient. I mean, let alone all of the other things that were going on in your career at that time, that I can't imagine dealing with all of it at once. And sometimes now it still is. I'm so used to now, this many years later, accepting help. But man, if I get a little bit sicker, I really hate to ask for more. I'm just so used to being that caretaker instead of caretaken. Yeah. You really have to let some of those things go and just let it be and let people help because people do want to help. And you have to remember that. And really the best thing that happened to me when I went back to work in 2005 with the ovarian cancer is, and you can see now if you're looking at this on video, I found it very difficult to wear a wig or any head coverings, it just really interfered with how I wanted to be in the world. But it also opened up a path for patients to talk to me about not just my illness, but their experience in their own life and what they were going through. And how I said I really wanted to practice where it was the doctor and the patient were back together, coming up with a plan together. It made that much easier. It also helped my staff understand They weren't gatekeepers for me so much as they were helpers in helping me get the patients on the path we wanted them to be on or they wanted to be on themselves. And so I was able to make that jump from just, you know, delivering care and however people showed up to work to showing them how I wanted the care delivered so people felt taken care of. And that's really what I wanted to do at that point. And I hoped that what I would achieve by the time I finished in medicine was seeing this transition occur where we went back to take care of patients and not taking care of charts. Unfortunately, I think it went the other direction unless you have your own practice or a direct primary care practice or something where you've kind of gotten rid of the 
administrative oversight and the insurance companies and all of that, unfortunately. Right. And I can remember being back in Jolton Head when people started to sell their practices and the problems started coming up. I said, why don't you guys just leave and not take insurance at all? You know, just charge a reasonable fee, get this whole third party out of your office, you know, just keep going. And none of them could even conceptualize that. And yeah. obviously now people are doing more than conceptualizing it. They're making it happen, which I'm glad to hear. Absolutely. So where did you take your own practice over the years? Once I got back into the office and chemotherapy was over, I gradually increased my hours. But I would tell you by two o'clock every day, I was exhausted and I could not continue to see patients. And I just had to say, two o'clock is my end time if I'm going to be healthy myself. And believe me, I wasn't necessarily the greatest in health. I gained a lot of weight, which was disappointing, but I just really, I think the stress of raising a family, having a new practice, wanting things to be so perfect for patients, it just, you know, really added to stress, prednisone, the hormones that make it fat. So that happened to me, but that's neither here nor there at this point. But what I did was just gradually build up a practice and get a team around me of, I want to say credential professionals, but NPs, physicians, nurses, in order to be able to deliver these products. And then I systematically built up the systems in the practice to support it. So a healthy functioning financial department, a healthy functioning education slash marketing department, a very HR department, really well-managed clinical teams. And I took it as seriously as if I was in residency. You know, we had meetings with the staff every morning just to get them going for the day and everybody know we all got on the same page. Once a week, we had an educational silo for the different groups that were in the office so that if we were talking amongst the physicians and providers, then we had M&M, but obviously there's no morbidity. Thank goodness. <laughs> <I mean> mortality. <laughs> mortality. <laughs> but I did try and have people present things that it turned out better than they predicted and worse than they predicted. And we went through what the steps were to get there so we could repeat the things that we did better and take things that we didn't do so well and elevate everyone at the same time. That was great. So then eventually we expanded to two offices and I was ready to scale up three more. Oh and then my ovarian cancer returned. And the question was, was were we going to keep trying to scale up or not? I buried on it a little bit because I think I hoped that I would get the ovarian cancer back under control again and get some more time. But then it was clear that wasn't happening. And so I had to go ahead and exit the business. And I will say that I did keep my eye on lots of things as I scaled this business up. The one thing that is so great is that people do want to help. And I had patients who came to me and gave me all kinds of different ideas. I had one patient who was in the PR sphere and she said, Carol, you know, there's this YouTube and I want, and it was right after my hair was coming back from ovarian cancer. She's like, let's come in and do a bunch of very formal filming back in 2006. And we put these videos up on YouTube. And at that point in time, I could only see that there were two other people doing anything in the aesthetic community in that sort of capacity. Had I been a little bit more aware, I could have seen that was a revenue stream coming 
in the future, which I didn't. So we did videos all the time and we did productions so that we could educate people, but I never really monetized it. But I want people to know that there's things that's going to come their way in medicine that they can monetize and they just need to be open to it. When I had my ovarian cancer initially and I talked to one of my friends who was a cardiologist and we were just talking about insurance, I'm so worried about things. And he said, do you know the way that we arrange things is that we have our practice and then we have an additional revenue stream where they owned all their offices. Like that I could relate to. I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy my buildings as I go through this. So there you know, was another revenue stream. The other thing that I see coming up is this virtual reality and augmented reality. And I think it's going to have so many applications for patients to feel comfortable with their with their physician before they do procedures, or even what does an interaction in an office look like when I walk in the front door, who am I going to say hello to? And just take the anxiety that people feel so heavily in a physician's office, because we are still people of authority, regardless of what you hear <laughs> on the internet, you know? And people want to feel comfortable when they walk through the door and know who people are. And that's one of the things that I did is I did a weekly TV segment on our local news. And then when people walked in the front door, they felt like they knew me before I had even met them. And so you just be open to new technologies, new ways of delivering care. And it ends up making the practice of medicine a lot of fun. And I did promise you, Tammy, I'm not trying to make anybody be a TikTok star or anything <laughs> like that. I don't want you to be incongruent with your values. Do you know what I mean? But how are you going to deliver that medical care where people are at today and how they receive their information? I think that's really important. The other thing I kept my eye on was knowing that this could come back at any time that I kept my disability up to date and I added and augmented it in case anything ever happened to me. And then really we just, you know, because I had invested so much at the time that I was diagnosed, we were really fiscally very responsible from that point moving forward as we paid down debt and we, we just never got into trouble again. It sounds like you've been a pioneer on so many different fronts, whether it be social media before it was before we even realized knew what we were looking at and the business side of medicine, which we're really not taught when we're going through school, but you've just had so much foresight in everything that you've done and you're amazing. <laughs> Thanks. And you know, one of the things that's really was really important to me is the phones being answered politely you know, people getting appointments and there being some continuity of care. So we made sure that everybody's plan for what they were doing was in the chart. So if they called in and they say, I want to do what Dr. Clinton told me to do in April, it was clearly documented. And if the patient had forgotten, my staff could see it. You know, this is what she wants you to do today or next week. And it made it easy for everybody. And I think really communication is the key. And so we started by talking about, you know, having morning meetings, a weekly meeting. We also did an all staff monthly meeting and just keeping everybody on the same page at all times, what the business was trying to achieve and what we were doing really great at and what we could improve at. Now, so just encouraging people all the time. 
sounds like you empowered everyone also, you know, to kind of do everything to the top of their ability and keep them informed and remind them of what their role is. And I think that's important. And I think the other thing is, you know, I know we make fun of drug reps or we just, you know, sometimes get just displaced by some of the stuff that comes our way. But honestly, if you schedule them and you know why you're scheduling them to come into the office and you keep them on track for what you're trying to allow them to educate your staff with and that you're there, so you're monitoring and you're not just letting them free flow stuff that may not be true, they can be very valuable and very helpful in helping educate your staff and helping you along for things that maybe they've seen in another office not coming in, like I don't ever want a vendor to come in and say, Dr. So-and-so was doing this better, but just how else can you approach this problem? These are three other ways I've seen people solve this problem that you're telling me that you're having. It's again, being open to it. You don't have to do anything anybody tells you, but you definitely, the more you listen and the more you absorb, the more you're able to assimilate how you want that to look in your practice. Now, you said you had to give up your practice. Did you have a partner at that time that you could just sell to, or how did you have to go about doing that? I didn't, and I really had wanted to sell to partners, and I just couldn't get the conversation. You know, I had a lawyer there because I had never sold anything. I had owned the whole thing my whole time, and we could just never get to where they understood what I wanted, and maybe I didn't understand stand what they wanted. So then I just had to go to a group of business people and ask them, how does one sell a business? And then legally, how do you do it? Because this is a medical practice. And then I just went out and I tried to find physicians. So I had physicians come to the table and, you know, see if they wanted to roll me into their surgical practice or something like that. Ones that are partially owned by private equity and physicians remain a majority of the ownership and other strategic partnerships. It ended up that I sold to dermatologists of central states who have some private equity money, but there's a lot of all the physicians still own. But because I had not been in the office for two years, personally, by the time I sold, they did not need me to stay on. And there was another physician in the practice and she was able to continue on and become one of the part owners and it fulfills some of the desires she had that I was not able to make happen for just her by herself. That sounds perfect. And maybe this goes back more to your ovarian cancer journey. I'm not sure, but I understand you also had or have a podcast as well. I do. So one of the things that I've obviously had unexpected, unwanted change throughout my life that most of us do. And so what I really wanted to do with that podcast was to help people who had unexpected, unwanted change and to change the sound in their own head of how is this going to be a positive thing for me? If you can't change the circumstances, you might as well change yourself, the way you think about it and view it. So that's what started the podcast. But I'm also a member of a very large group of physician women who have cancer, who talk online all the time. And one of the things I wanted to do, number one, is get information for myself. I'll be selfish about that. The second thing is to encourage people who, sometimes people get a lot of anxiety 
And they know that they have, I mean, cancer is cancer. I'm not putting anybody down, but there are some cancers that are more curable and that sort of thing. But there's still a lot of anxiety that goes along with it. And I want to be an encouraging voice for them. But also people like me, we have end of life issues that we really need to think about in a much more substantial way. Everybody can. Most of the group have their legal and financial stuff. They know like, hey, I got, when they say, get your house in order, that's what most people are talking about. Now I asked my physician who's in his seventies and has been doing this a long time. I said, last year, I'm like, what does that mean? When you say, get your stuff in order. He looked at me, he's like, well, nobody's really asked me that before. So then I went out to the group and some of them were like, making sure I have stuff for my kids or my grandkids so that they remember me, either recordings of my voice or, you know, recordings of myself, stories, making sure that you have, like, if there's special things you want to pass down, make sure you write a story about why that's special to you and why it's going to the person that it's going. What do you, you know, what happens on the day you die? I just saw the cutest thing on Facebook. Maybe not everybody thinks it's cute, but it was somebody who had terminal cancer. And on the day he died, he had written a thing and it said, I died today. And he had written this really beautiful note to all of his Facebook community, which was big, about what it was like to be a, you know, to have all of their support and to be, have been a dad and a leader and all of these things and just how grateful he was for his life. And I thought that is just really beautiful making sure that you do those things that are important to you before you pass and whatever that is, but you have to take the time to consider what those things are. Otherwise you can't do them. <laughs> when I was trying to get you, trying to get to know you a little bit better, I Facebook stalked you a little bit, <laughs> but I could tell that even if you're not practicing medicine per se right now, you're still helping people. I could see there was just this huge focus on trying to help others with that end of life care or coming to terms with, like you said, something that maybe they hadn't planned on going through these huge medical issues or having big life changes at this point. But your whole career, your whole life sounds like it's just been different ways and that you could help others. And it's just beautiful. Well, thank you. You know, if I look at like what my purpose in life is, and some people do, you know, it really is to help people see the things that they can't see so that they can elevate themselves. And if that's education through, you know, healthcare, that's great. And if that's just reminding them that these unexpected changes can have lemonade. And one of my girlfriends was here last week and I was in the hospital and she just sent me a card yesterday and she's like, you always can find a way to make lemonade out of lemons. And she sent me these little lemon tea bags and it's so sweet. It just makes you, you know, that fills my soul. And not that I wanted it to be this way, but I knew when I recurred with my ovarian cancer that it would be the first time in our children's lives that when they picked up the phone, they would probably get me almost every time they called. Whereas in a career in medicine, that is not what happens. And my husband's been largely in charge of, you know, responding to school crises or anything that happened, he was in charge. And I do want to say he always, even though I did the YouTube early on, he came to me and he's like, you got to look at Facebook, you got to look at Twitter, you got to know what these things are. 
and how to use them over, you know, he was an IT person and then made sure our whole office was IT connected properly very early on. So he sounds like a perfect partner. He is. And I would hate to miss out talking about him. (laughs) Although, although he knows what he's done, but every now and again, it is nice to get a thank you. you Absolutely. I'm going to put you on the spot. Any words of advice for some of the younger doctors who are coming out of residency and fellowship? I mean, whether that be career advice or social advice or just life advice. I would say a couple of things. The first is you continue to be the leader of the medical team and take that seriously. When you see people saying, I'm an NP, I'm this, I'm, you know, PA and I'm as equal to a doctor, that is just not true educationally. And there's lots of great ways for people to be integrated into a team, but we are the team leaders. And I think you should be very protective of being the team leader in your career. And do take that advantage when people are telling you things, sit back, listen and absorb and see if it is some something that you want to incorporate in your life, either in your practice or in your family, in your personal life, so that ideas that you were not presented in medical school don't become something that you just don't even want to consider. You're going to learn a whole lot more if you keep your mind uh, open and your mouth a little bit closed. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Carol, you are such a beautiful, wonderful person. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on the show and just talk about your life professionally and personally. Well, thank you so much and continue to do this and continue to do grand rounds to educate our young physicians because I want them to love medicine as much as I love it today, uh, 30 years plus since leaving medical school. Just to remind anyone who's listening, Carol did write a book to help other physicians who are wanting to build or scale their business. She discusses her journey in starting her aesthetics practice and expanding that business into something very successful. She helps to teach other physician entrepreneurs how to get five to 10 times valuation when selling their business. You can find her book, Med Spa Confidential, on Amazon.com. Once again, thank you to Dr. Carol Clinton for coming on the show today. And thank you all for tuning in to this week's Grand Rounds. I hope you'll join me again next week.